You're listening to the Historical Bookworm Show for lovers of history and readers of inspirational fiction. Join your hosts, Kylie and Darcy, for author interviews, a pinch of the past, and special bookworm reviews. Hi, this is Kylie Woodley. And Darcy Fournier. Before we get to the interview, Darcy and I wanted to share a couple changes, but first... I need to apologize because we missed an episode the week before last. I was on the road traveling across the country (laughs) and I just had so much on my plate. I was offered a job at Baylor University back in April and my family and I have spent the last few months preparing for the move from Oregon to Texas. And I just, you know, being human and having certain weaknesses and, you know, not being able to just magically stretch time so I can spit everything that I have to do into these days and hours that God provides. Yeah, I was not able to share Jen Tarano's interview at our scheduled date. So, Um, just wanted to, I just hate it when I can't be on time, but we are going to be sharing her interview now, but first the changes. So we are diving into a new format with our podcast. Don't worry. Your favorite sections are not going to leave. We're still going to have our author interviews, our pinches of the past and our book reviews, but they will each release as separate episodes. This allows us to go back to releasing something every week, and it gives us a chance to spotlight our guest authors who are coming on for the book reviews and when we occasionally have someone come in to help us out with the pinch of the past. So kind of excited about this. I think it will help take a little bit of the workload off of us and also still bring you guys great content and a little something every week. In addition, our newsletter is going to take on a slightly different format. You'll still be getting a personal update from us, and mostly it will be full of links to content that we hope you'll enjoy with maybe some sneak peeks at what's coming up in the next quarter. But you can expect that approximately every three months. And if you are not yet a subscriber of the Historical Bookworm newsletter, you can go to historicalbookworm.com. And we have a pop-up that we'll set up there or just Google historical bookworm newsletter. And so for this episode, Jen Toronto joins us for a chat about fashion, gilded age matchmaking, her writing quirks and her latest release, A Match in the Making. Don't forget to enter to win a copy of this great book. Named one of the funniest voices in inspirational romance by Booklist, Jen Tirano is a USA Today bestselling author known for penning quirky historical romances set in the Gilded Age. Her books have earned Publishers Weekly and Booklist starred reviews, top picks from Romantic Times, and praise from Library Journal. She's been a finalist twice for the RT Reviewers Choice Awards and had two of her books listed in the top 100 romances of the past decade from Booklist. When she's not writing, she spends her time outside in Denver, Colorado. Jen Toronto, welcome to the Historical Bookworm Show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm delighted to be here. Oh, I'm excited to get to talking about this book. 
But before we dive into that, you write a lot in the Gilded Age. So if you were to visit that time period, what do you think would be the most fun for you? And what do you think might be the most difficult adjustment? Well, I think the most fun would definitely just be taking in all the opulence. The mansions that marched down Fifth Avenue, they were so big and they were so just what what a lot of the members of the New York 400 did, which those are the upper crust of society throughout the country. They were called the New York 400. And so they wanted to kind of make their homes seem like they'd been there forever, even though they were new. <laughs> So they would they would send their agents over to Europe and they would literally take out entire rooms from these crumbling castles um, that, you know, that the people in England could no longer keep up. And they would they would take them brick by brick and bring them back to their mansions. Like the interiors were just amazing. And then you had the cottages in Newport and they weren't cottages. They were mansions. And um, that's where that's where the people went to summer at their cottages in Newport. And again, they were just amazing. Like Alva Vanderbilt built this one called the Marble House. And it is just, if you ever have a chance to just pull up pictures of that, it's truly jaw dropping. But what I would find the most difficult adjustment, I think it would just be the fashions of the day because they are, they were so constrictive for women, you know, with all the corsets and the, um, the drawers and then the Kremlins. And I mean, there's just, there was so much that went into getting dressed. And if you were a member of the 400, so say if you were in Newport for the summer, they actually changed their clothing at least seven times a day. Oh, and, um, yeah. And they never wore the same outfits twice. The fortunes back then were just considering that most people made a couple thousand dollars a year. Um, the members of the 400 had millions of dollars. Um, like the Vanderbilt family, when the Commodore Vanderbilt died, he was the one who made the original fortune. He was worth $100 million. I mean, he actually had $100 million in the 1870s, which would have been billions today. And then his son doubled that. When he died, they had $200 million. So they just had so much disposable income, whereas, you know, they were paying their, their maids a couple dollars, you know, a week it was just the conspicuous consumption was a little out of control. So I think that would be the most difficult thing besides like actually having to wear those costumes to, to be fashionable or whatever. I think I would really have a problem with the fact that there was, they had so much wealth and yet they didn't spread it around a lot. Yeah. Like with charities and different things like that to help people and to pay their maids so little. Yes. There was a big, Big disconnect there. Um, and then there were, obviously, there were families who did, you know, do a lot of philanthropy. But, you know, that didn't really happen right at first when they first started making their money. Um, again, the Commodore Vanderbilt, he built Vanderbilt University. But he was an interesting character because he did not build that out of the goodness of his heart. He built that because his second wife, Frankie, convinced him that if he built a university, it would have his name on it and everybody would remember the Vanderbilt name forever. Oh, <laughs> so, <laughs> so there you go. Not really a charitable spirit there, but it is a very nice university. That is so interesting how they would build these, you know, palatial mansions and even go so far as to import actual rooms and furnishings for their houses. But then 
they thought it was fun, I guess, to change clothes seven times a day. For me, it's like, oh my gosh, mm-hmm. what a burden that you have mm-hmm. to be in and out of all your things and you have to like look so perfect for society. But I guess they just didn't mind. You know what? It was just expected. And it was it was always that one up somebody else, you know, keeping up with the Joneses or and especially if you were admitted into Newport Society where they, you know, did that for the summer. Ward McAllister, he was the social arbiter of the day. He said it normally took three Newport summers to even be like invited to like casual picnic. And then if you were not by three summers, you were never going to be admitted into Port High Society. Hmm. There you go. Little historical tidbit. Wow, that one's cool. Well, what drew you to writing comedy in your stories? And where do you find your inspiration? I mean, you know, comedy is just um, my go-to writing style. It's my sweet spot. And what is my inspiration is weird things have just always happened to me. So I've always looked at life like with like an amused eye. So a lot of the things that you find in my stories have actually happened to me or I've seen them happen to my friends in a different form, of course. So it's just, it's just my go-to genre is just to write comedy into any story I write. I think you're right about the more you watch people, the more you see that people are just fun mm-hmm. and funny. They are. And I've just seen, yes, yeah, so many interesting things. I was telling somebody the other day, like just when I was in college, we had to walk across this field called, it was Jackson Field, and it was a shortcut to get to my classes. So one day I was walking and it was really, really windy and all these newspapers were flying around. And the next thing you know, the newspapers are stuck over me. Like then it was like, it was just from, it would look like a Lucille Ball comedy. I couldn't get the newspaper off my face. And so there was a football player walking ahead of me and he, and he was laughing, right? But just to show you, you shouldn't be laughing at me. Like he took like five steps after I finally got this newspaper off my face and it was pretty slick and he like slid and he hit so hard that it took everything I had not to laugh at him. But (laughs) on that same field, I was walking across and I saw these construction people working on something and I was heading off to an English class. And I remember I was wearing this really cute little outfit. It had like this striped little shirt, like a sailor shirt and this little skirt and these Ked tennis shoes. The next thing you know, all the sprinklers, not just one station, all the sprinklers went off. And I was at the halfway point of this field and it was a really large field. So by the time I got to the other side, I am sopping wet and I'm laughing like a hyena and I couldn't go home because I had a paper due in my English class. So I had to slosh along (laughs) across campus soaking wet. And I just walked into the English class and my professor just looked like his eyes were huge. And I'm like, clearly. I've experienced some difficulty getting to class today, <laughs> but here's my paper. And then he, he's told me, he's like, y- you need to go home. So I handed him the paper and then I went home. But so it's, it's stuff like that, that I just twisted a little bit and fit it into my stories from some of those comedic scenes that, you know, a lot of people are like, well, that's just outlandish. And it's like, well, that actually happened. <laughs> so. Well, and it's so great that like in walking through the sprinklers, you know, in college that you can just laugh that off. Like some people would be like running or frustrated or, you know, worried about their makeup. But you're just like, oh, ha, ha, this is funny. Here we go. And I think that kind of humor, I mean, it definitely sets you apart in the industry. You've been writing for quite a few years now. So which character would you say was your all time favorite character and why? I have to say it's Poppy Garrison. From a diamond in the rough, I don't know exactly what it is about her, but I can say that when I was writing that story, she did not give me any trouble. 
at all as I was writing, which is a very unusual circumstance because my characters always give me a hard time. And she was just, she, she liked her name right from the beginning. She was cool with where I was taking her with the plot line. Um, so she didn't buck. And, and I always know when my characters buck because the writing starts slowing down for me. And it feels mm-hmm. like I'm trying to write through mud. And um, it just means that I haven't really figured out who those characters are yet. Um, oh, yeah. But with Poppy, that didn't happen. So she was just a delight to write. Well, that's awesome. And I honestly didn't read that one. But I have a friend and she's a huge fan. And she wrote a review for the podcast, actually. And she mentioned Poppy and what a fun character she is. <laughs> Well, good. Well, tell her I said thank you very much when you speak to her next. I will. I will. Now, Jen, is there anything especially interesting that you haven't covered in other interviews that you could share with us? Or perhaps there's something that God has laid on your heart that you would like to share with your readers? Well, you know what? I've covered about everything. Um, Let's see. One thing. Well, what, what some readers don't know is that I do not pick out the titles for my books. I did pick out my very first thing that was published was Gentleman of Her Dreams. And it's a novella that leads into my first series. And I did choose that title. That book can can still be downloaded for free. My editor and I decided that I was going to do that and then offer it to readers for free so that people could be introduced to my writing style because I'm well aware that it's a little quirky. (laughs) So we wanted we wanted readers to know what they were getting into before you know what before my first actual novel came out. So I did choose that one, but I have not chosen another title because I'm horrible at them. Um and like for so like a most peculiar circumstance, I I can't remember what I chose for that, but it was something like love everlasting or you know something on those lines. And and my editor was like, what about a most peculiar peculiar circumstance. And I was like, well, you win. So now um, when I turn my books in, I just titled them book one, book two, book three. However, with that said, I did choose the title for a match in the making. Mm-hmm. Oh, And I don't actually know how that came to me, but it did. Um, I did not choose the name for the second book, which is to spark a match. My um, somebody on my street team threw that at me. And then The third book is tentatively titled To Meet Her Match. I didn't choose that one either. (laughs) So there you go. That is so funny. Titles can be so hard. I know when I was writing my book and came down to title it, I just agonized over what I was going to call it. But that's kind of fun that after all these years of not titling them, this one came to you. So that's cool. My whole editing team knows, like, I'm horrible at writing or at selecting titles. And I'm also horrible with, so when I turn in a proposal for a new book series, right, you have to do, you know, a synopsis of your series. And I am just, I mean, it's just bad. It is so <laughs> bad. So, but I've been around long enough now where all I have to do is send in like a paragraph with, you know what I mean? Like kind of an idea of where I might be going because... No, it's like I have a, it's like I have a mental block and I just can't write those. So they just cut me a little bit of slack there. That's awesome that you've been able to work with them so long and they just, they know how you go so they can take that paragraph and go, yep, that's good. Right. Yeah. Well, let's go ahead and dive into talking about your latest, A Match in the Making, which is book one in a new series, The Matchmakers. Miss Gwendolyn Brindley accepted a temporary paid companion position for the Newport summer season, believing it will be a lark to spend the summer in America's most exclusive town. 
She suddenly finds her summer turning anything but amusing when her employer expects her to take over responsibilities as an assistant matchmaker. Tasked with the daunting prospect of attaining advantageous matches for her clients, Gwendolyn soon finds herself in the company of Mr. Walter Townsend, the catch of the season, but a gentleman Gwendolyn finds beyond annoying. Walter is reluctantly in search of a wife for the sake of his unruly motherless children. What he wasn't expecting was Miss Brindley, who turns his quest for a new wife into a complete and utter debacle. The more time they spend together throughout the Newport season, the harder it is for Gwendolyn to find Walter a wife when she realizes his perfect match might be her. USA Today bestselling author Jen Toronto's trademark wit, sweet romance, and hilarious mischief will keep you turning the pages of this lively Gilded Age tale. Sounds like we're going to enjoy a grand laugh at the expense of the Newport High Society and a matchmaker falls for her client trope is always just delightfully awkward. <laughs> and speaking of matchmakers, were there really employers dedicated to matchmaking services during the Gilded Age? You know, so there there were. They really weren't considered employers. They were normally society matrons, and it was a very hush-hush business. But there is one example, Minnie Paget, and Minnie was an American heiress. She wasn't a grand heiress. She was like mid-level heiress, right? So she marries Sir Arthur Paget, who was from England, right? And she goes over to England. And the English during this time, they, whereas New York society was really good at keeping people out of their exclusive midst, the English were more than willing to embrace new money from America, because a lot of them had these crumbling manors and castles, and they just could no longer keep up the expense of running their grand estates and things over in England. So they can only be passed down through the family. So they couldn't sell off their grand estates. It's just how they do things over there. So Minnie is over in England, and she starts taking, you know, so American mothers would bring their daughters, again, with all of their trunks filled with clothes from Worth. Um, Charles Worth was the designer in Paris that everybody wanted to wear, right? So they would arrive in England, in London, and Minnie would start, and she was the one who would take them around and perform introductions to these gentlemen, these, you know, earls and dukes and whatnot, who needed to marry an heiress, so that they could shore up their estates. So she was a matchmaker. I mean, she was one of the known matchmakers. But the interesting thing is that there's no, I can't find anything that says exactly how she was compensated. You know, was she given jewelry when she secured an engagement? Hmm, That's up for speculation. I would imagine she did, but she definitely received a lot of panache and her status rose within the, you know, within this prestigious families in London, because she was responsible for for brokering these very productive matches where the American heiresses were gaining a title for their family. And the titled aristocracy was receiving money that they needed to plump up their coffers. So it was a good business deal, basically, for both sides. And so she was, you know, well-respected and welcomed because she helped broker these arrangements. That is fascinating. 
The problem is, though, however, throughout research that I've done, there were a lot of those unions that the American heiress who married these aristocrats did not want to. I mean, the biggest example was Consuela Vanderbilt, who married the Duke of Marlborough. That was a match that was brokered. Alva had met with Minnie, and then they arranged for Consuela to meet the Duke. He went by the name of Sonny. And she did not want to marry him. And he did not want to marry her, but he needed her money. He was in love with somebody else. Consuela was, she was young. She was 18. You know, she thought she was in love with somebody else. And her mother, Alva, forced forced the marriage. Um, And she literally was weeping as she walked down the aisle. So you guys, so the the mom in me is appalled that, you know what I mean? Like someone like Minnie was arranging all these matches for these poor girls who had no choice but to marry these men. And sometimes there was a great deal of age difference between them and they were forced to marry them so that they're, and once, you know, the family got the title, see, it was easier for them to then be accepted into New York high society because now, well, they have a countess in the family, you know? So- yeah, it's fascinating. Now, the history is fascinating. It is. It is very interesting. So was there anything else that you found particularly interesting in your research that you included in the book? You know, the one thing that I absolutely adored was um, there is a ball toward the end of the book. And it's a ball where they're including children. So I needed activities that children would have done during that time. And I, and I know that's like, it's a very weird thing to do in a ball. But in Newport... The balls there were not what you would expect. And as as the Gilded Age wore on, they got more and more outlandish. So Mamie Fish, who was a society matron, she once held a ball where the dogs, where everyone brought their dogs, and they were the guests of honor. And then she also, she worked with, his nickname was King Lair. He was, afterward, McAllister fell out of favor with as the social arbiter. He Mr. Lear stepped in. And so they created this ball where they said that there was going to be this, this Duke was going to be the guest of honor and it turned out to be a monkey. Um, So they were like really just kind of crazy things. So when I did this ball and had the children included, it really wasn't that out of the norm for the Newport setting. That would have been out of the norm for the, for the New York season. But anyway, so I needed activities. So I was researching different games they would have played. And I found this game It's called Annie over. And it's kind of like dodgeball, but you have a hedge in between you and you throw the ball and it's not as vicious as dodgeball, but it just, it was just interesting to me that I actually found this game that they gave the instructions on how to play it. And I will, when we have like a neighborhood, you know, you get those neighborhood get togethers. I will have the kids play this game because I just think it sounds like a blast. (laughs) So that was the most interesting. That is so cool. And I love that, you know, they're, trying to do something different and fun. And so they do these off the wall balls, but having the kids there, I think that's fun. So I'm glad you got to include that. So this is the first book in your new series, The Matchmakers. Can you give us just a tiny peek at what's coming next? Yeah. So next um, coming out November 14th is the second book in the series. It's called To Spark a Match. And it is Miss Adelaide Devine's story. She makes, she is in book one. She becomes good friends with Gwendolyn. And Adelaide is an awkward sort. She's a misfit. Um, She prefers to spend her time reading her books and surrounded by her cats. And she has the Mm -hmm. most unusual things happen to her all the time. Just so the book opens up where she is strolling across the, the receiving room 
room after visiting the retiring room. And unfortunately, the hem of her skirt has gotten tucked up into her bustles. <gasps> and so she's flashing oh, everybody no. with her drawers. And they're oh. unusual drawers because they're embroidered with cats. One of her dear friends thought that they were, they were supposed to be lucky drawers. Oh. <laughs> and they actually turned out to be lucky drawers because of then actually what happens in hindsight, you know what I mean? But um, mm-hmm. so in the, she, so she disappears into, she decides she's going to hide out and read her book for a while because that was appalling. And she disappears into the library and that's when she encounters Mr. Gideon Abbott, who was also in book one and Gideon is acting incredibly suspicious. And it turns out he's gotten himself in a bit of a pickle. He might be some manner of spy. And so Adelaide helps rescue him, gets him out of his pickle. But in the process, she might get attacked by some rabid swans, which disrupts this dinner party she's at. And society decides to ostracize her. And that's when Gideon steps in. He convinces his friend, Camilla Pierpont, who is only mentioned in the first book. She doesn't have an on-page appearance to take Adelaide in hand so that she does not get the cut direct from society. But he wants Camilla to turn her into a diamond of the first water. But you have to read the book to see what actually happens. And then after that, the third book, I'm I'm doing the um, first draft on that right now. It's tentatively titled To Meet Her Match. And that is Camilla's story. And Camilla is an unusual matchmaker in that she's not married And she has Mm -hmm. vowed to never marry because when she made her debut at the ripe old age of 17, the dastardly Lord Shoeberry broke her heart. Mm -hmm. There you go. That's what's coming up. (laughs) Oh, wow. That's awesome. Those stories sound so fun. And I love the meet cute of the first one where they're in the library. (laughs) Yes. You know what? And it's uh, things take a rather concerning turn like right from the get-go with poor Adelaide so but she was a super fun character to write because yes she just she has a really good attitude toward life she, she's not really overly concerned that her you know the hem of her skirt got tucked into her bustle and that is actually from real life that is something that happened to me back in the day when I worked in fashion I mean I didn't have a bustle on but mm, something similar happened <laughs> oh no Well, your books all sound like so much fun. And for our listeners, Jen is offering a copy of A Match in the Making to enter to win. Just go to our website, historicalbookroom.com and click on the giveaways tab. You can also find the link for that giveaway in the show notes of this episode. And Jen, uh, how can our listeners connect with you? Um, You know, the best way is just through social media, my Jen Toronto Facebook author page, which is Jen Toronto author, or Instagram, same thing, Jen Toronto author. All right. And we will have those links in the show notes for this episode so that people can just easily find you. And thank you so much for coming on the show. This has been a lot of fun. Thank you so much for having me. You two enjoy your weekend. You've been listening to the Historical Bookworm Show, where history meets fiction. For more information, find us at historicalbookworm.com.